Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Edwin Van de Heer about his new book, Degrees of Freedom, Liberal Political Philosophy and Ideology, what is put out by Transaction Publishers. Edwin, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Edwin, before we begin, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Yes, I'm an independent scholar. Uh, specialized in the liberal tradition in international political theory. I've wrote a few books, uh, on uh, one on classical liberalism and international relations theory, uh, focusing on the work of um, Hume, Smith, Mises, and Hayek. Uh, I've also wrote a, a Dutch uh, book on, well, on political, the political philosophy of uh, liberalism. And this book is more like an extension and translation of the Dutch book, but it's far more um, uh, well. It's far more extended, I would say, especially in the the methodological field. Um, and I I try to uh, write on um, uh, on current affairs as well on a blog called Notes on Liberty, and I run the uh, Facebook group on libertarianism and IR together with a uh, my good friend Lucas Fryer. Excellent, excellent. That's that's inter- interesting stuff. Uh, so how did you, I mean, you've kind of explained it in your, in your introduction, but I'd like you sit to wonder if you'd say a little bit more about how you came to write this book. Well, uh, well, I guess there's more books. It all starts with a, you know, a question or even a nuisance. And I guess it was both in my case, because during the, the research for my PhD thesis, um, well, I've read a lot of books, obviously, but I never came across a book who would explain the liberal tradition in full. Um, the more you read about liberalism, the more confused you get. Uh, the more liberals, liberalisms you come across. Uh, and I've tried to, in this book, I've tried to make sense of the liberal mess, as I, as I call it, um, by, um, by focusing on uh, the answers liberals can give to the question, what is the justified interference, uh, measure of interference by the state? In the, in the life of the individual. I think that's the, the guiding principle in my book. And uh, I figure out that, you know, if you, if you take that question uh, as a central question, then there are only three different liberalisms. You can explain uh, the world uh, and, and, the li- and, and the world of liberalism by using these three liberalisms. Um, and uh, for my background, it's very important that uh, we, we're not talking just about liberalism in domestic affairs, but I've also added in every chapter uh, the view of the particular liberal variety on international affairs, because I don't think there's much boundary between them other than artificial academic boundaries who've, who've developed over time uh, during you know, the last decades with uh, academic specialization. So I, th- I think it's very important to, uh, to see them as a whole, 
uh, also to um, to make it more uh, well easy for people to understand uh, how you can explain the current world um, by using liberal ideas. What you said struck me, and you, you, you do this in the book very well. The the, the way that uh, scholars of political ideology and, and even people who write about foreign policy have made these artificial boundaries. Like, I, I, I read the book and I'm like, this, this makes a lot of sense because that hasn't been touched Thanks. a lot. <laughs> as someone who's, you know, I specialize in U.S. foreign policy and, you know, I'd like to think of myself as pretty well read on the subject. I don't think there's a lot of work that uh, does this. And when, when, when I read it, I'm like, this is, this is actually a very valuable thing that I, that we could have. And I would advise whoever is listening in, you know, the, U.S. foreign policy to pick this book up and read it because it does raise important arguments that that's not in a lot of the literature. So I commend you for doing that. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's my it's my intention to um, to show that there's more to liberalism than uh, people think, uh, and especially I must say in uh, in American academia, where liberalism is of course what we in Europe would think is something like social democracy uh, or socialism even. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the main, uh, thing in the, in the history of liberal ideas that the, um, the term liberalism has taken as well, can, can mean it's, it's op- one thing and it, and it's opposite, um, truly actually. So, uh, yeah, I've tried to, um, well, to, to make some more sense out of it and, and propose a, uh, a really, um, in my, in my, in my view, at least. Uh, I've tried to uh, propose just you know three um, uh, three you, you can you know divide up liberalism and liberal thought and liberal ideology just in three you know that's uh, that's complicated enough I think yeah and it's a very good way of thinking about it and it's a it's a good segue into the way you break it down into three different uh, larger three different types as a to use as a framework. So let's start with classical liberalism. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners what is classical liberalism, one of the three uh, broad categories you use to define liberalism. Well, classical liberalism is the, um, well, the liberalism it all started with. Uh, so it originates from the 18th century, uh, especially from, from the Enlightenment. Um, and it's the liberalism of this, the, the great Scots, for example, David Hume and Adam Smith. Uh, but perhaps also the uh, the French um, Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire, um, and the main idea of um, of that kind of liberalism is that uh, you should um, uh, leave people alone, or at least you should not interfere with their uh, well, we, we, what we would now call their basic human rights or their their, their negative uh, human rights. Which means, I mean, you have to see it in context that these people were uh, fighting or struggling or arguing against uh, absolute uh, kings, very dominant churches. Um, they wanted to be, and they so they, their plea was for tolerance, tolerance for individuals making their own decisions about their own lives. And the good thing about that, they thought, uh, and this is also, of course, uh, related to the strict. Uh, protection of property rights, individual property rights, and the great thing about that uh, classical liberal thing uh, think is that um, if you leave people alone, um, and here we come to the issue of spontaneous order, if you if you leave people alone, they will interact with each other 
they will uh, um, trade with one another. And the result of this will be that there will be um, order in societies uh, because people are uh, innate, uh, innate social species. So they, ha- they, li- they live together because they want to live together. You know, the few exceptions, of course. Uh, but most people are, um, are, are want to live together. And this is very well put in Smith's theory of moral sentiment, um, which in his own time he was far more famous more for than, the, uh, um, than we now know the Wealth of Nations, also because the Wealth of Nations was written uh, much later in his life. Um, but spontaneous order is, is, a, is a, a core a concept of uh, classical liberalism. And also the idea that the state should be limited. It's not uh, abolished, like libertarians would say, or, or you know, very minimal. No, they sh- the state should be limited to uh, you know, a small amount of tasks that help to, um, uh, to create a good order for classical liberals and for individual people to flourish. Um, the basis of... Um, their view on human nature, which I think is also a very relevant view of human nature of classical liberalists, is that um, man should be seen uh, uh, as some 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 a person who is um, directed both by uh, emotions and by reason. It's a mix, uh, but in the end, reason wins. Uh, you know. It's, Jung put it very, very um, eloquently, saying that the reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions, and I think that's that's uh, that's very well put. Um, so, negative freedom, realistic view of human nature, spontaneous order, and a limited state—these are the core concepts of classical liberalism. Um, then you, of course. Uh, uh, we'll find that classical liberals are also much in favor of the rule of law or constitutionalism, uh, which means that, you know, the state has to base its action against the individual on, on rules which were uh, adopted prior to that particular action. And to protect the individual against the state even better, uh, the most important rules should be put in a, in a constitution uh, and the advantage of the Constitution, of course, is that it's much harder to change than a regular law. Uh, so that serves as extra protection. Um, so these are, I think, the the core ideas, in my view, but this is um, uh, this will raise more eyebrows, I think. Um, um, I follow Knut Hackensen in his idea that uh, classical liberals are natural law thinkers. Uh, so the idea that there is a, a natural order between people um, and um, so this is not about utilitarianism um, as some people would have uh, classified classical liberalism. I think uh, if you go to uh, Hume and Smith but also to uh, to Hayek, uh, these are all natural law thinkers. I've tried to make that clear in, my, in, the, in the first book mm-hmm. I um, talked about in the uh, introduction. Yeah, it's an interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, when I read this, when every time I think of classical liberalism, I think of two things. I think of the students in my class who have no idea what classical liberalism is, 
Like even today, a kid, we were talking about progressivism and he just cried, cried out, seemingly out of nowhere, those damn liberals. Uh, <laughs> the first thing out of his mouth. And I'm also thinking about the idea that American, the American Revolution is somehow, uh, I've read this argument in various places, is like a classical liberal revolution. You sometimes hear the term Lockean, you hear other ways of putting about it, but that is classical liberalism put into uh, effect. Is, is that an argument that you find persuasive or is it uh, more complicated than that or misleading? Um, well, I'm not an expert on the, um, the, on the, on the American Revolution, but I think um, most people actually in America draw on Locke and uh, his idea of the you know, property rights, the, the strict defense of property rights. And in that sense, I think it's uh, certainly um, a, a classical liberal uh, idea and a classical liberal uh, historical act. Um, although Locke himself was not much of a classical liberal, uh, you know, in in his ideas mm-hmm. on the economy, he, he was you know he was more like a socialist really. Uh, and of course, he supported. Yeah, I think he was a slave owner uh, also. Um, uh, but in his, you know, in his property rights uh, theory, he certainly um, uh, was influential, uh, and I think he also influenced, although not that much, uh, the Scottish thinkers I uh, I just mentioned. Um, but of course, the idea that you you want to be free, you don't want to be ruled by someone else, you, and certainly not a state, you know, on the other side of an ocean, uh, who's taxing you. Uh, who want you even to um, uh, to fu- to you know, take up arms uh, for that uh, particular colonial order? Uh, well, I think these are all. You know, if you reject those ideas, then you're certainly a classical liberal. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you made that point about Locke. I mean, he's a very uh, interesting figure, I think. And most Americans, if they know Locke at all, the first thing they'll think of is Declaration of Independence and Jefferson. But I'm glad you brought up in the book that his credentials as a liberal or as someone who believes in freedom is very, very complex. And it's not simply, uh, you know, an easy, an easy, an easy answer for that. So, no, that, so there's that, a that. whole literature on that, of course. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, I know that, you know, some people, some Locke scholars uh, have, have a bit of a different view, but uh, it's never really clear cut. And I, I, uh, if you read Locke's um, uh, biography by, um, sorry, <laughs> uh, by Roger Woolhouse, uh, then you, you know, you don't find much evidence of uh, Locke being uh, being much of a, li- a classical liberal outside his theory of um, uh, of property rights. So we have classical liberalism. I was wondering if you could tell us how classical liberalism differs from the next uh, term you use, social liberalism. Sure. Yeah, I think um, um, socialism was a reaction to classism um, from, say, the in the 19th century, so say from the 1830s onwards. Um, it was a reaction also under influence of you know the the rise of communism and socialism, um, and it. Um, it was a uh, and John Stuart Mill is, is much of a pivotal figure here uh, because he, he set out uh, as a true classical liberalism and his work on political economy, for example, is you know was used way into the 20th century uh, in classrooms uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. And on liberty, of course, is a is a famous tract uh, where you can find much classical liberal ideas. 
But in the end, um, the social liberals uh, banned it uh, with the, the, the societal tide, if, if I may call it that way. And they, um, what they did is they, 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 well, they adapted to the, to, the, to the times and changed their uh, ideas. So instead of negative freedom, they had a view of positive freedom. Um, and this uh, dichotomy because between negative freedom and positive freedom, of course, was only invented much later by Isaiah Berlin in the, in the 1960s, but still it's a very uh, well-known uh, uh, set of, of concepts. Uh, but a positive idea, like the positive freedom, uh, which means that um, people should uh, develop should develop themselves, um, and because every individual has a set of talents, which should be in, he or she should be able to use those talents. But um, uh, and these are known to that particular person, but it's not always uh, feasible or possible for that person to use those talents. And here comes the state, because there the state should, uh, should help out. Um, and, um, uh, and that's, of course, where the trouble begins, at least from a classical liberal uh, perspective. Um, class, uh, social liberals think that, um, that self-development is also social justice. So, the social, uh, so people should be, uh, well, helped or should be, uh, should we have access to education, for example, or uh, access to a uh, extended social welfare system just to be able to, um, well, to raise themselves up, more or less, or to use the talents they, they have for, well, you know, whatever particular direction they, uh, they bring them. Um, and this all depends on an extended state. Um, and, of course, uh, if you look at the you know, development into the 20th century uh, with John Rawls as the, the big uh, class, uh, social liberal person, uh, but he's, well, of course, he's used uh, and seen as, a, as an example also by uh, social democratic um, thinkers or even socialist thinkers, but certainly also by social liberal thinkers. Um, and then you have the idea of the um, uh, social justice uh, idea. Well, it's even more important there. Also, the idea of to have a very extended welfare state. Um, so that means that social uh, liberals don't take the idea of private property rights as serious as the classical liberals do, um, uh, because obviously you need to raise taxes and ra- and and you know to to get taxes you need to um, um, uh, go in, you know you need to take it from from people, uh, which is a breach of, uh, of, a, of a property right, obviously. Um, what they think is that, you know, uh, classical liberals, they are, you know, very happy to, um, to live in a world where only the classical human rights or natural rights, as they were called, um, uh, are about. And you have to think like the, uh, you know, the freedom of expression, freedom of religion, those kinds of rights. Um, but We've seen in the uh, in the past decades that you know, the the human rights catalog has expanded dramatically, um, and that pretty much um, uh, fix, fits fits very well with uh, social liberalism. Um, and uh, there also the belief is not so much in natural law, but there's a social contract idea um, that you know uh, 
the community or people living together in a state have a social contract with each other. Uh, and that means they also have duties uh, to one another, uh, which uh, will often are, are uh, expressed or uh, given uh, practical expression through state interference. Um, property right, and, um, uh, and a, another uh, important idea for social liberals is that the, uh, they see much more of a role for positive, uh, positive law. So not so much a spontaneous order, uh, but positive law, which originates again from the state, um, which is you know, meant to, uh, to bring order to uh, society. Yeah, that's, those are interesting points. Uh, when I read your book, I kept thinking about Rawls, and I was wondering if you could say more about what did you find, how you, you reacted to his arguments when you first encountered them. Because when I was an undergrad, I went to Yale as an undergrad. He was very much in vogue. A class after class was talking about him. I mean, he had wrote, I believe that his, his famous work was in, from the 70s. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he was still being talked about. Students were reading him. You know, sometimes I thought some students carried around his book. Well, maybe not all, obviously. Like, like almost like a Mao, you know, red book in China. <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you could just, just say a little more about what I you think. That's still the case uh, because many people actually think that, uh, or, says, or or claim that political philosophy was dead until um, Rawls' A Theory of Justice, which was indeed published in 1971. Uh, and much of modern political philosophy is still uh, working out roles. Um, I've been a, a visiting professor at uh, Brown University uh, previously this year, and there in the political philosophy department, indeed, roles was taught, uh, and the well, the, the the modern philosophers who uh, react to roles uh, where it was still thought at, um, you know, at, uh, at, at, at PhD level. So, uh, yeah, um, I think the, it's still the case, um, that Rawls is, is seen as the, well, the, the liberator, uh, somehow, <laughs> uh, True. but of course he's not really liberating, at least not from a classical liberal uh, perspective, um, because it's, um, uh, well, some people, uh, some commentators of course think, Rawls didn't go uh, far enough uh, with social uh, the idea of social justice. So they proposed, you know, far more ideas to make the world um, uh, as, as, uh, as well as equal to everybody, um, and others um, will follow Rawls and um, and still think that he um, well he wrote the right words, uh, so to say. Uh, the thing is that um, what is, of course, appealing of his ideas is that, uh, uh, well, you, it's hard to, to oppose social justice. You know? uh, if you ask somebody, well, are you against social justice, then it's hard to say no, uh, at least not in the Western world, uh, because it sounds very appealing and very reasonable and very uh, nice, and, you know, it's about nice people. Um uh, but it's, you know, there, there's a lot of disadvantage about the idea as well, um, because the, um, uh, a greater government, and I, I live in the Netherlands where, you know, the government takes uh, more than 50% of my income uh, to redistribute um, uh, that money. 
Um, well, some of it I, I approve, uh, a lot of it I disapprove. Uh, but it's taken, well, in the end, of course, it's taken at gunpoint. Um, so that means that I'm, I, I'm not as free as I would like to be. Um, and, um, well, Rolls, the, um, Rolls gives a good mix of um, uh, recipes for a, for a just society. So, um, you know, you should, there's a long list of proposals he makes. Uh, also in his um, uh, successor book called uh, Political Liberalism uh, in 1993. Uh, you know, he, he adjusts a little bit to the, in, uh, after the critiques, but he still uh, remains at the same path uh, of, you know, public financing for elections, uh, the guarantee for sufficient public information on policy decisions, uh, the guarantee of equal opportunities for all in education and training, um, provision of basic health care for all, which I guess is a very topical dis- uh, a discussion in America still. Uh, the guarantee of a decent division of income and property in order to keep in check the influence of wealthy people who can use political power for their own interests. Well, enter Donald Trump, perhaps. Uh, um, guarantee employment for all through local government or other arrangements. Uh, you know, these are... Um, uh, well, quite heavy uh, ideas uh, from a classical liberal uh, perspective, and uh, uh, and even a lot of social democrats won't go as far uh, anymore um, as as this list of uh, ideas by Rawls. Yeah, I mean, the questions you just raised are fundamental questions that liberalism addresses. But I mean, any society has to deal with those types of questions, which is you know one of the reasons your book is relevant to anybody who has any interest in how the world works and how politics works. So you can pick up and read about how people have ideas about how fundamental questions of how societies are ordered are addressed by, you know, these schools of thought that are the the framework that you have and by individual thinkers. So I think, you know, just from that level, it's an important book to read to, you know, understand and have arguments about, you know, how your society is, is going. Yeah. I mean, my claim is that you cannot understand, at least not in the West, you cannot understand your society without having knowledge about uh, liberalism. Sure, and I, uh, you make that case convincingly in my mind. But I think that was a good time to segue into the third of your uh, the framework or the breakdowns that you use, uh, libertarianism. Yeah. Wonder we could say more about uh, that uh, idea. Sure. Yeah, libertarianism also originates from the 19th century, and in a way, it's also. A commentary on classical liberalism, but then uh, towards the other way, uh, and the other way meaning that um, class uh, libertarians are the absolute freedom people. Um, uh, there are two main strands of libertarianism. Of course, there are many more, but two main ones. Uh, first are the ones who don't want a state at all, no state, which are the anarcho-capitalists. Um, and there's a, um, uh, another strand that wants a very minimal state. So a state that only provides police, justice, uh, and, uh, well, the protection of property rights in a way, uh, and perhaps foreign um, uh, and defense. Uh, so three tasks only, and that's about it. Um, these, uh, the libertarians also, in, in general, have a negative uh, freedom idea. So they see people as uh, well, uh, as strong, but as a mix of emotions and, and reason. 
um, they strongly, strongly believe in the, in the protection of, of private property rights. It's a core issue for libertarianism. Uh, and they have a very high faith in spontaneous order because um, the, libertarians, the libertarians put in a lot of work to, um, to, to, to give evidence that their society would work. Um, because they're, the critique on, uh, on libertarianism is always that, you know, it's a very uh, bad society where, you know, people will perish uh, because, you know, it's, only, it's, a, it's a good society for the strong, uh, but not for the weak. And libertarians try to, um, to give counter evidence saying that, no, um, it's just that the state is not providing all services doesn't mean those services aren't, would not exist in a libertarian society. Uh, it's just that, you know, uh, the private, um, uh, private companies and the market will take care of social, uh, you know, security or, um, uh, I say, insurance for social, uh, social security, all kinds of that. Uh, they will leave some even uh, claim that, uh, like Hans-Hermann Hoppe, um, that insurance companies can even take care of uh, national defense, um, which I'm personally not convinced by the idea, but still, uh, it, it's 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 within the anarcho-capitalist. It's a uh, well, oh, it's a well-discussed idea. Um, libertarians are very strong natural law believers, uh, and as I said, strong defenders of um, of property rights. Um, and they really, well, you know, they write a lot of books about how good their society would be. Um, and a, um, well, a very, one woman <laughs> stands out, it's Ayn Rand, uh, who's of course well, very well known in America, or at least so in, less so in, in Europe, I must say. Uh, but she claims to have invented her own form of libertarianism called objectivism, um, but that can be seen as a form of uh, minigism, so the, the people who would like to uh, see a li very limited state only. What do you make of her appeal in America? I mean, not that you you know have your pulse on everything that goes on here. I'm I'm fascinated. I've read a few of her works. Uh, not the entire. I, I can't say I went through all of them page by page, but I've read what she's written. I've read a few biographies, and I sometimes I just can't quite put my finger on why she was so popular. She's, I mean, she is popular on college campuses. Yeah. The university I teach at Ferris State has a, essentially what amounts to an Enron fan club that shows up at events and quotes objectivist uh, material in books. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't remember the one, the book, the guy where the guy rather blows up his, uh, his hotel or the building he creates because it's changed mm -hmm. by, I can't remember the title of it. I'm, I'm blanking. Fountain, Say that again. Fountainhead. Yes, I think that's it. I, I just I mix up the titles, so but the they, they know, yeah, yeah, they know this stuff. Or and uh, so anyways, I love it. I mean, I love Ayn Rand. I think uh, I'm I'm not a Randian. Uh, I'm not an objectivist, uh, but I think her work is 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 great. Um, I mean, I'm trying to get a, a publish uh, an article on her ideas on international relations published at the moment. Um, I've went through uh, well almost all of her work. Um, what fascinates me is that, uh, well, indeed, she was able to, to, to get a, a large following, even, you know, uh, just a few years until, she, until her death in the early 80s. Um, mm -hmm. 
on and and she you know if you read audios uh if you if you, if you listen to audio tapes you know her accent was very very heavy so it's you know it's very yeah. hard to follow um but she made the emotional case for liberty whereas the other liber- liberals are uh very much eco- economist dominated um ideas yeah. uh and you know economists are nice people uh but their way of argument is is not always appealing to the, to to people it's abstract it's a bit cold you have to you know you, you have to you know follow their argument with you know you, have, you need basic uh information for that uh, at least it's different than the uh, the emotional appeal uh, Ayn Rand makes, and I think uh, I think that that's that's what really stands out in her uh, in her work. Uh, and I think in the '60s she was also against the Vietnam War, so she sided, you know, with well, with the left more or less, more or less, uh, and she and she was popular among um, uh, well people in that movement. Um, but in the end, she was, of course, a, a charismatic leader, uh, you know, with a with a small following, which you know they called themselves even the collective as as a joke. Um, and you know, she was a bit like an authoritarian leader as well, because she, you know, it was all the all the signs of a cult uh, were yeah. there. Um, but if you read her, she, you know, not all her ideas are brilliant, and she she wrote funny or uh, well, silly things as well, but in the end, uh, she succeeded in well in a pretty coherent uh, philosophy, and um, uh, which uh, uh, well stands out to an extent from from other liberals. But in the end, I think it's it's fair to say that she uh, she's a um, after all. Yeah, and she's an interesting figure to uh, transition to the next part of your book, which deals with the. Uh, relationship between liberalism and conservatism yeah. because when I'm, I've been doing research recently at Hoover Institution at Stanford oh. University, I, I was looking at um, uh, some um, really uh, unprocessed papers of the Young Americans for Freedom. Uh, and there, a lot of those early documents had debates between the various factions in the Republican Party, including a lot of libertarians were showing up at these uh, meetings. Uh, quoting Ayn Rand and how to how to deal with that. And, you know, they, they definitely, you know, influence became, you know, part of the Republican landscape in the 60s and into the 70s. I mean, it even influenced the thinking of people like Alan Greenspan mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, well, I guess what I'm getting at is where is that line between liberalism and conservatism as, as far as you define it in your book? Um, well, I think the line is... is, is, um, is I think, well, the main point is that, uh, in my view, uh, conservatives uh, are, are most uh, uh, closely related to the classical liberals and less so to social liberals and libertarians. Um, what makes them, uh, well, they share their, uh, a realistic view of human nature. Uh, they um, uh, sometimes are fierce uh, defenders of individual rights and, and, and freedom. Uh, for example, in the uh, Thatcher and uh, Reagan era, uh, but that's not always not always the case. So the um, uh, the neoconservatives, for example, in uh, during the uh, Bush Jr. 
or, well, I must say, the first Bush Jr. Uh, era, um, um, were, of course, not about uh, uh, small, small states because they, 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 they advocated huge uh, state involvement, big state spending. Um, so conservatives are not always, um, uh, you, you cannot pin down, you cannot, you cannot pin down conservatives um, because outside their core beliefs in a realistic view of human nature, the idea of organic change, so they, they're not against change as some people would have it. Uh, so not, conservatives are not always defenders of the status quo. But uh, the change that uh, goes on, they feel, should be organic in order to preserve the good things that um, were given to us by our, um, by our parents and uh, generations before that. Uh, they believe that you know, society as it is should not be uh, changed um, drastically just by one generation because they would, uh, well, demolish the wisdom of uh, of the ages as they as they call call it um so the conservatives are often a counter movement so if the left is on uh, uh, is governing they will lean to the right and uh, and vice versa uh just you know which makes sense from their perspective because if, if you want to preserve uh the way things are then of course you need to have a, a counterbalance the um uh, the main the main power of the moment um conservatives are more concerned with religion although uh all three strands of liberal liberalism are you know are perfectly uh, able to um to um, uh, to have religious ideas as well so that liberalism is not anti uh, religion at all but conservatism are, you know, they feel they feel stronger for religious and religious uh, religion and religious ideas, um, because they think uh, that's also part of, of human heritage. Uh, they feel the groups uh, groups and family are important. Um, so it's not so conservatives are are not um, about are not individualists. Uh, you know, they care more about groups and family in particular. Um, they, uh, they also believe in, the, um, in, in hierarchy in society, whereas liberals, of course, think, you know, one man, one vote, one, you know, all, um, all individuals should have equal moral rights and moral status. Uh, conservatives think that, you know, some hierarchy is good and sometimes you, you just have to follow the leaders uh, you know, who are people with extra talents, um, and so they should be followed by um, by the others. Um, and if they're you know not uh, leaning towards the liberal side, of course they have a very active state. So they don't care if uh, a state uh, if if there's law, positive law, that you know goes against individual liberty, because in the end that's not their main concern their main concern. So you cannot trust conservatives with individual liberty, which is, of course, the, the uh, core concept of uh, all three liberals, all three forms of liberalism. Yeah, I found this chapter very interesting because the debates we have in the Republican Party here in the United States about what is conservatism? Is it 
you know, the idea of individual freedom, government, autonomy from government? Is it the religious angle defining freedom or in terms of, um, you know, more of, of group of group rights and relationships that bind society together or things focus on the moral order, like with, with the issue of gay marriage. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the Americans are debating what conservatism is, and it, it inevitably overlaps with these ideas of liberalism you're talking about. So, mm-hmm. once again, for Americans listening to this this broadcast, this is a good book that will make you more informed of these debates and you know give you the ammunition to address the arguments that you're hearing by these politicians. So, once again, well done on, on that note. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. And another thing that that comes up when you when you when you, when you get into chapter five and you begin to define um, the evolution or the d- differences between liberalism and conservatism, it, it raises the issue of uh, the kind of I would call it by by reading this book the neo game, you know the uh, the issue of neo conservatism and neoliberalism when people put neo labels on, and you deal with neo conservatism and you can say more about that if you, if you want to, but you really go after this idea of neoliberalism. And I was wondering if you could say more about that. Uh, yeah, first of all, uh, yeah, indeed, people make up their own uh, political philosophies all the time. Uh, so, so, yeah, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the adjective neo is very popular. Um, yeah, I think the neoconservatives, as I said, um, um, they have been uh, influential for a while. Uh, they were very much engaged with cultural issues, um, and they did not care as much about, you know, the expansion of, of the state. So that's that's really something um, uh, to keep in mind. Neoliberals, on the other hand, that's, that's you know, uh, my claim is that neoliberalism doesn't exist. Exists. It's a phantom idea. Um, it's 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 made up by opponents. Of liberalism, so from the left, and it's hard to find anybody who calls himself neoliberal. So it's really just a construct to, uh, and it, and you know, it's like a basket um, a term where you know you can everything that, that goes wrong in the world, uh, you can blame on neoliberalism. Uh, at least that's what, uh, well, the anti-neoliberals try to do. Uh, and in my view, that's just you know, uh, it's 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 empty, uh, it's without meaning, uh, and it's simply not true, um, because it's it's only used in well, socialist circles, uh, social democratic circles, uh, but not as much in liberal circles. Although it has been in the, in the past uh, a couple of years in um, in Germany, uh, but that was only you know a few years um, uh, before and after the Second World War. Um, so neo, the yeah, there's there's many wrong liberalisms, but the neo liberalism <laughs> is, I guess, the uh, well, it's it's a favorite swear word of of the left, uh, and it's a shame that you know nobody, no liberal really stands up, or not many liberals stands up to defend the true meaning of liberalism, because uh, journalists, of course, take the term, uh, regular people take take over the term. Uh, and f- before you know it, it's seen as something that's real, um, but it's like as I said, it's hollow and it's it's a phantom. Yeah, and I didn't know much about the early history of the idea earlier, or, or the early history of the idea that you uh, describe in the book. So that was interesting as well. But you're right; it is one of those terms that comes around that people just use to criticize stuff. <laughs> uh, we see it it's all the time. Shame that 
for example, even Oxford University, which uh, press, which is supposed to be a very good press, uh, you know, in their um, uh, they, they 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 publish books on this, you know, and in their uh, the uh, very short, uh, you know, little the little books they they publish on all kinds of topics. Uh, it's it's just you know it's a one way street the way they uh, portray and uh, present um, uh, neoliberalism. Um, and it's in their view the, the liberalism they they use is a bit of a mix of conservatism, classical liberalism, and uh, libertarianism, uh, and the, and the main threat is of, and the main theme is of course that the market is the the evil uh, source of of all wrongs. That's that's basically what it is, and you know it's it's anti capitalist. Big uh, co- uh, companies are always to blame, uh, and so forth and so forth. Yeah, that's my sense of it too. It's a it's a general. It's used as a critique of capitalism. Yeah, is, is, is what I see a lot of it. Yeah, but it, but anyways, what, another part of your book we haven't said that much about, and this is a question you may not be able to answer in the short time frame we have. But if you could just tell the listeners maybe a little bit about what each of these schools tell us about foreign affairs. I mean, once I said this is a question that might take. You could probably spend an hour on talking, but if you look at these philosophies, <laughs> how do they relate? How do they relate to foreign affairs? I mean, if you could, you know, summarize yeah, yeah, that. No, that's, that's, uh, thanks for asking that because uh, it's, it's one of the things I really uh, care a lot about. Uh, um, well, basically, uh, what they think in domestic affairs is also what they think in international affairs. So, uh, for example, classical liberals, they well, they think conflict is inevitable in any society because, you know, as I said, humans are fallible and emotion takes over, uh, which, you know, means that they will no, not always be able to uh, to follow the rational path um, given, well, assuming for the moment just, just uh, that, that not having not a fight is, is rational. Um, but for classical liberals, that, that's not the case. And they think, um, well, if, if conflict is a feature of domestic affairs, it's also a feature of international affairs because international affairs is also about people. Um, so conflict and war are perpetual features of international affairs. Uh, in essence, that's because due to, to human nature. Um, so the question for classical liberals is not how to get rid of war, but how to deal with war and uh, maybe to limit war uh, you know, at most. Um, one thing also is that, uh, uh, and this is my, uh, I, well, I can talk about it for, for many more than one hours, but uh, the idea that trade brings peace, which is, of course, a very prominent uh, idea in international relations uh, among liberals, uh, is not a classical liberal idea um, because trade will not reduce or eliminate um, the sources of war, international conflict. Trade's great. Trade brings uh, prosperity. Trade brings cultural exchange. Trade, uh, you know, has a lot of other um, uh, advantages, but trade is unable to, um, to get, you know, to reduce or eliminate uh, well, sources of war, uh, such as, you know, uh, because wars are, you know, are not, always um, uh, founded on economic issues. Uh, you know, some is geopolitical, there will be religious issues, there will be border issues. These things will just remain, no matter how much you trade. 
And of course, history is on my side here. If you um, if you look at the former trading partners who are just as happily um, uh, or not happily go to war with each other. Um, for classical liberals also, it's, it's important that the nation state is seen as the uh, primary actor in international relations because um, they feel that um, it's very hard, if not impossible, for individual people to f- have strong feelings for uh, beyond the nation state. Uh, so the nation state is somewhat like the outer limit or the outer bound of meaningful emotions. Um, and you need these emotions to keep together a state. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, therefore nation states are the prime, prime actor. Um, the idea of spontaneous order, you, you will also find in international relations. Uh, and that's then the idea of balance of power. So the idea that, um, uh, because there's, uh, there's no judge, of course, so there's no, uh, international judge with the same, uh, power as a judge or a court, uh, in the, uh, in the national situation. Um, so how to deal with each other, how to get international order? Well, it can be done spontaneous as well. Well, to an extent, at least, uh, by balancing. So, uh, well, the Cold War, of course, was, was a great example where you had the Soviet bloc, you had the American bloc with their allies, uh, and they were both, well, more or less equal, uh, at least for, for some time. And um, while this prevented war between those big powers, uh, which, you know, could have worked civilization away uh, with all the nuclear weapons around, um, you know, you sometimes they were fought uh, well, proxy wars, so to say, uh, but this, while terrible if you're in that, uh, these, of, of course, were not as bad as, as a big war between the, the huge powers. Um, another idea of uh, uh, classical liberal IR of international relations is that if war uh, is conducted, you should at least try um, uh, to stick to the just war principles, uh, which mean both uh, rules for how to get into war and rules for how to behave in war. Uh, so, for example, you should not uh, you should have a, you should have a, ri- a real cause of war. You should declare war, uh, but you should always uh, leave uh, civilians out of the uh, combat. For example, um, because classical liberals are in favor of individual liberty. Uh, imperialism and colonialism is not part of classical liberal ideas on international relations at all. Um, they want a small state in the domestic society, which means they also want a small state in or a small uh, state-like organizations in the international uh, situation, which means a um, uh, they're very hesitant for to towards international organizations such as the United Nations. Uh, or their their satellite um, organizations, they have a very, um, uh, well, they're very hesitant also about the majority of positive international law and treaties, because most of the time these are binding and harder to change than than laws in the um, domestic society. Um, And from the 50s onwards, they've been very strong um, opponents of development aid, um, uh, which goes back to the ideas of Peter Bauer, 
who says development aid is, um, is, is only about taking money from the poor in rich countries and bring it to the uh, rich in poor countries. That's a good quote. Yeah. And, uh, uh, for example, Hayek and Mises uh, agreed uh, with that. And, uh, well, of course, the issue of the of military intervention, uh, which is one of those perpetual issues in international relations as well, um, well, they were very hesitant towards military intervention. Uh, I've looked into it, and um, uh, I wrote a chapter in, in, in another book about this, Human Smith, they basically thought a military event, military adventure is a bad idea uh, because the success rate would be uh, would be re- uh, very limited. Um, although they did not close the door uh, completely, you know, they, uh, they there may have been some reason once in a while if a um, you know a king or a leader thought that would be uh, would be a good idea and he could explain it to this uh, to his people. Uh, but in general, this is a, you know, military interventions are a no-go area for classical liberal. Um, so that will be classical liberal uh, ideas on IR very quickly. Um, whereas the social liberals, again, uh, oppose uh, or, or have a different views. They think that, um, well, people are reasonable uh, and therefore world peace is attainable because, uh, well, People are able to see the advantages of a world peace. Um, and they think, uh, well, international positive law and international organizations are actually very good vehicles to, um, uh, to, well, to attain world peace or at least to, get to, to go into the right direction. Um, they do think that free trade um, fosters democracy and peace uh, through the idea that Trade makes ties between between countries and between people in countries, and as law, and, um, and they also have uh, it also creates interest groups, domestic interest groups, who all um, are able to um, uh, to limit the desire of governments to um, to go to war. Uh, so for them, free trade is um, related to interdependence, democracy, all fosters peace. Um, they do think military intervention is justified um, uh, because it maybe uh, uh, it must be used sometimes to enforce global justice. So global justice doesn't always, um, well, in their view at least, um, it's not a um, spontaneous order issue, but it's uh, active state involvement issue. Um, and this is actually the liberalism found in most IR textbooks and. Um, in political philosophy, as the uh, Scottish um, uh, philosopher Nicholas Renger said, in the academic global justice industry, uh, this is the kind of ideas you will find. And it's all they were also um, uh, more or less um, uh, written about by, by, by Rawls, although he was uh, a bit more realistic, a bit more leaning to the classical liberal side in his, in his book on... Uh, uh, international relations, much to the disappointment of many of his followers, uh, obviously. And there's, a, there's yeah. another industry uh, around that book, um, which was um, uh, published later, just before his death, well, in the, in the 90s. And it's called The uh, the Law of Peoples, which is his main book on this issue. Um, then um, libertarianism, libertarians, uh, well, they also strive for peace, 
um, and actively a post-war. Um, and uh, for example, following Robert Higgs, uh, they point out the hidden costs of war. Say that, for example, a war in wartime government extends their powers, um, extends their grip of society, and these extensions are never uh, cut back after peace, which is true, but it doesn't really solve the uh, issue of the uh, the causes of war, obviously. Um, just because it's bad, it's not going away. Uh, classical liberals would, uh, would argue against that. Uh, libertarians are very much about self-defense, so they believe that you know uh, countries should not interfere in other countries. Um, they stress they're not pacifists, um, but still, uh, uh, you know, only relying on strict self-defense. Uh, well, this is also a, a bit of a U.S. USA-centered idea, because relying on self-defense is fine if you're, you know, one of the biggest nations in the world. Uh, but it's a bit hard if you're Luxembourg or if you're uh, well the Netherlands for that uh, for that matter. Um, so it's it's not you know this is not a very practical idea. Um, well, for the um, as I, I just mentioned that some of the uh, anarcho-capitalists believe that uh, defense should be a, a private insurance issue, a state issue, and they um, develop all kinds of plans to show that this will work. Um, they also believe in guerrilla warfare, at least some of uh, the libertarians, meaning that, uh, you know, even though a, a foreign country or foreign, inv- or foreign force may invade your, your country, you just, uh, you know, you try to get them out by guerrilla warfare, um, thinking that this will be a, a better way to, um, to get people out than, you know, all out uh, war against the intruders. Um, the Minagists are very isolationist, so they are, you know, which is of course a very traditional American stand, at least in the 18th, uh, 19th century. Um, they are strong believers that foreign trade forces peace. Uh, well, with the classical liberals, obviously they also oppose international law, international organizations, uh, military intervention, and imperialism. Uh, but again, uh, Ayn Rand stands out because she was very uh, uh, much uh, in favor of military intervention and uh, uh, she had a very, act- act- a very active foreign policy ideas uh, with strong military uh, might. And uh, so, so she stands out on this front again, I would say. Yeah, when I, when I read the section on libertarianism and foreign policy, and rightfully or wrongly, I suppose, I couldn't get the image out of the Mad Max movies out of my head. <laughs> I don't just that the idea that if, if you had private armies, private companies or groups of people in these you know, communities that had private armies, why the basic laws of human nature wouldn't apply to them. Uh, it seems a stretch for me. I'm not sure. I mean, you, I, if I remember correctly from the book, you have you're skeptical about a lot of these arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm not stressed. I'm not. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to just criticize libertarians. Uh, sure, that's not my sure. idea, but I've, I've yeah, t- I've took some time to um, to write about uh, Herman uh, Hoppe's idea of uh, defense as private insurance, and if you you know make the analysis, then his 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 idea is lacking uh, in substance. Uh, you know, he's, it relies on a few ideas which are a bit simple, uh, so it's not thought out. 
at all, I would say. Um, so if you maybe it's possible to make the case, but it's not made yet. Sure, sure. And another, that's kind of a, an abrupt segue, but I, what I found was another interesting part of your book is how you make these distinctions based on the size of the government and what how that fits into the, the certain categories that you use, that this percentage of income, or what is it, percentage of GDP that a, that a government spends? I can't remember exactly how you worded it, that this, is, fits, this fits libertarianism, this fits classical liberalism, this is social uh, liberalism in terms of how much the government extracts and then redistributes. Yeah, this is a bit of a rough of thumb uh, thing because uh, yes. uh, in the uh, in my book I, I use a different uh, framework, the one by uh, by Michael Frieden and his uh, ideas on uh, ideologies, uh, which are in his idea conceptual um, ideas, which you know, uh, and, and the, because by comparison the uh, structure of the concepts you can compare ideologies uh but you know if we if we try to keep it simple then of course uh well as, as a small rule of thumb i would uh, I, I suggest that you know if you look at the um, um the take of government of gdp then um well for example a um uh, a good a good way to distinguish between those three forms i just mentioned would be uh, for example um, that um, uh, for libertarians, you know, any between zero and uh, say uh, twenty twenty-five is all, is a just way of uh, um, the government take. Uh, whereas for classical liberalism, uh, it would be anywhere say between twenty and um, uh, thirty, perhaps. And um, well, for social liberals, because they need more money for all those state tasks. It could run up to fifty um, percent, uh, uh, but never more than that, because if you if the government takes a larger share than fifty percent um, of the economy, it basically means that all people are slaves of the state, mm-hmm. uh, um, and that's well, that's that's the that's the case in many European countries, um, uh, although don't, people don't feel it that way, which may serve, which is evidence that. Hayek was right in his idea of the road to serfdom because the road to serfdom was actually the road that uh, people would uh, that would lead to a situation where people uh, would always look to the state for answers and uh, uh, well were enslaved by the state because because of the governmental take uh, from the economy. So uh, Hayek was right in this in this way. Um, but that's, so as a rule of thumb, you you can use that, uh, and I you know I, I it's a bit of a side idea uh, I, I included in the book just to keep well, it, to, to keep it simple. Yeah, I mean I, I like that about the book, and I think it's an interesting way to start discussions because that line and wherever it is between social liberalism and social democracy, I think is an interesting one and relevant for our listeners because. Right now in the United States, if I can simplify a lot of things, we're having a debate. There are a lot of authors out there from Jeffrey Sachs to any number of people, the economist Jeffrey Sachs, that are, if you read their arguments, they're pretty much saying that the United States, in order to progress or become a more competitive country and deal with its problems, needs more social democracy. As far as I can that that's what it boils down to, because we're talking about, you know, Countries like Sweden having more social mobility than the many Americans do now because of the gaps in wealth and the inner city versus the suburbs. Yeah. 
And one of the reasons I like your book is it will give people a way to enter those debates. I mean, at the end of the day, does where do you kind of see that whole argument that America needs more social democracy? Is that just people are I don't know, shouldn't follow the example of Europe? They should 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 step back and look at the bigger picture. Or uh, how do you? I don't, that I don't think there's any reason to follow Europe in in this in this uh, in this respect. Uh, there's no reason to why you should not be able to solve the problems if the government takes less uh, of, of GDP. Uh, it's only a matter of you know how you spend your money and what programs you have, and uh, 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 so there's no there's no obvious answer in the European situations. Um, that you know, and not forgetting that in the US, I think the, the government all, all uh, well at least in some states already takes forty percent of, of GDP or state GDP, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, whereas in Europe, um, people always warn for American situations, uh, you know, and they mean, uh, indeed that, that, you know, the, the problems of the urban, of, uh, of the urban poor, uh, and the fact that, you know, you're not insured against all kinds of risks. Um, uh, I don't think, it's a good idea for the U.S. to to take much ideas from Europe in this respect at all. It's an, it's an interesting argument. I don't know if you've read that new book called The Fourth Revolution by the former editor of uh, The Economist, the, the two guys. One's named Micklewaite, I believe. Mm, I haven't. Uh, I haven't so. Well, I mean, they're, they're, their argument is essentially that the United States needs, uh, would be better off in adopting, they consciously call themselves liberals. I if you have time, it might, it might be something worth reading because they think that liberalism and many of the ideas that you talk about here would be better for the United States to have a more effective but smaller state. Like they think the, 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 the recipe isn't becoming bigger and taking more money. It's actually doing a smaller number of things better yeah. in order to, to create a better society. I mean, that's the gist of their book in a nutshell. It's not bigger is better. It's reduce, but do those things you reduce better and then you can have a, a leaner, more liberal government. Yeah. So that sounds kind of what uh, that sounds like my kind of idea, yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess another another area where where your book might come into um, at least have relevance in terms of you know the the way the world works today. Uh, a lot of people would I think say that these liberal ideas don't have much relevance for countries that are poor or non-Western countries, like liberalism is basically a function of the West. It's an emphasis on individuality. Like, is China going to, you know, benefit from a liberal approaches or even see them as relevant, uh, that they're too poor? I mean, how would you respond to those arguments that liberalism is simply something that's only suitable for the West? Well, I think people should look at, this, at Southeast Asia. Uh, I've been lucky enough to live four years in the Philippines, so I've seen it with my own eyes. Uh, but, you know, uh, but also China, perhaps, and, and ask yourself, so how does, did those countries develop themselves? And, you know, what did they do? Well, basically, they embraced liberal ideas, liberal uh, economic ideas, of course, in the first instance, uh, you know, the market, capitalism, uh, individual entrepreneurs, who uh, uh, were, were allowed to, uh, well, you know, to do their thing. Uh, and that's the way forward. Uh, you know, that's it's a huge success. Um, well, Southeast Asia are evidence that liberalism actually works. Um, and of course, it's not perfect there. It's not a perfect. It's not a liberal uh, paradise yet. 
um, because indeed, uh, well, Singapore or countries like uh, you know, there's, there's corruption, there's uh, author- authoritarian uh, government, but um, you know, think of it. That's even you know more more proof that that liberalism actually works because despite all these uh, setbacks at the international, uh, at the uh, individual level, you still have um, uh, developed countries who've gained uh, tremendously uh, and that, you know, helped a lot of people out of poverty. Um, And Mm -hmm. the idea is that, you know, I think uh, I follow Milton Friedman in this, is of course that, you know, at a certain point in time, people want to have individual liberty as well. So they, uh, you know, once they get um, uh, affluent enough to, you know, to have a good life, to um, don't worry about food or housing or shelter or clothing anymore, uh, there will come a time that people dis- demand more freedom as well. And I think in China, there's, there's a lot of, you know, local um, uh, uprisings asking for more uh, liberty. And um, I think, well, that that happens sometimes in Southeast Asian countries as well. Um, so I'm I'm pretty optimistic about this. Uh, actually, I think liberalism will guide the world first uh, through the uh, the economic part, but I'm uh, I'm pretty confident that the other um, the other parts of liberalism will uh, will follow. Yeah, I think you, you make some very good arguments there, and I'd, you know, I'd like to thank you for taking so much time to, to talk to me. But I, I can't help but ask you at least one more question about yeah, about no, the book. Free. It's great. It's great to be. And uh, in terms of like, it seems to me that these are arguments that people should be out there, you know, hitting the pavement with to defend it in terms of progress. I think about your argument about Southeast Asia is absolutely correct. That in you know many universities and in many discourses, neoliberalism has, you know, more of a visible audience and a lot of people pay more attention to than basic liberal ideas. And a lot of the ways, I mean, not the only way, but you, you, you explain that as part of this idea of liberal confusion. And you, you draw this idea of the kind of the complex, or not the complexities, but the, the way things get muddled, so to speak, because of the way people kind of confuse or conflate political ideology versus political theory. And things get all kind of messed up in how people understand liberalism. I was wondering if you could say more about that and how people can, other than reading your book, can kind of come up with ways to defend these ideas uh, better in practice. Uh, well, I think, I mean, you know, you, you only have to look at the um, uh, what, what, what liberal think tanks, classical liberal think tanks uh, put in the open. For, uh, and I'm, I'm very much, uh, uh, I love the Institute of Humane Studies, for example, uh, and their Ideas in Liberty uh, videos. Uh, the K2 Institute has great material. So, you know, there's many, uh, um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of material out there to defend uh, all kinds of, you know, impractical issues. Um, I, th- what I, my take uh, in this book, of course, is that I, I treated the three variants of liberalism as uh, ideology uh, variants uh, by using the, uh, the framework of Michael Freedom Um and the difference with political theory is that perhaps those uh, three uh, variants are less, you know, are not 100% logical or, you know, they don't meet all um, criteria which you will put on a proper philosophy. 
Um, but I think that's only right because it doesn't make them less uh, valuable. Uh, and if you look at the, um, the, the, the main thinkers, the main liberal thinkers, most of them were not full-time academics. Uh, John Stuart Mill was not, David Hume was not, um, Smith, Adam Smith was a long time of his life, but not his whole life. Uh, Hayek was, was a professor, but Mises was not. Um, you know, it's only within the 20th century with uh, academic specialization uh, that you will see more full-time professors uh, adding to the, um, uh, adding ideas to, to the three liberals, to the three forms of liberalism. But um so I think the um, the freedom framework is very very valuable, and it's all about you know it's it's not about the labels it's about the content going uh, that fills the ideas. So it's the different concept that fill the idea of classical liberalism. It's the different concepts that fill social liberalism, and it's the different concept concept that fill libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes they overlap, and sometimes they don't. Uh, and sometimes they have the same core ideas, uh, like individual the desire to expand individual liberty. Uh, but sometimes they just have different um, uh, different views on things. And you can you can you know, uh, and it's well, it's not easy to detect, but it's it's detectable if you take time and read sure. uh, and read a lot. That's that's basically what you have to do. <laughs> sure. And another argument that I hear, I mean, just in reading and talking to people, is this idea that, well, liberalism may do all this good stuff, and I'm defining it roughly as, you know, this idea of individual freedoms and economic freedom and so forth. But at the end of the day, you know, it's just producing countries like the United States, which consists mainly of people interested in consumption and watching terrible television, and they're not disengaging from politics and civil societies weakening, even What's his name? Francis Fukuyama, who wrote, you know, the end of history thesis, worried about the future in terms of people just, you know, the big great decisions in life would boil down whether to buy a big screen TV or a a new car or something like this. I mean, in your in your research and what you um, you just encountered, maybe in the the intellectual debates out there, how do you respond to arguments that one of the, the shortcomings of liberalism is it doesn't promise something greater than basic individual fulfillment? I think it's laughable. Uh, these are, you know, these are silly arguments because these people either uh, only read the, the wrong papers or don't look at their fellow citizens at all. Uh, I mean, it's it's just basically not true. It's not what people do. Uh, sure, they they might like may may like a big television, but then they go out to church uh, and volunteer in, in you know some some kind of thing. Or uh, some kind of initiative, or uh, you know, they they go to uh, school to uh, support their kids, or they coach the teams, or you know, people. That's what people do. Uh, so it's it's just silly to uh, reduce people to um, either their role as consumers, um, or you know, uh, any other role. Basically, people are too complicated for that, and that's just the great thing about liberalism that they take into account. Uh, um, the differences between people, and they take into account what people are really uh, really are. So that's why the view on human nature is such an essential issue of uh, classical liberal th- uh, and and uh, all liberal thought. Um, so it's just you know it's just not true. Um, that, that's my take. 
Yeah, I, I definitely see your argument. I just I wanted to throw it out there because sure. I do see that from time, from time to time, from time to time in books. Um, and this idea of centralized planning will come up every now and then when the economy goes down or oh, yeah. you have terms. They're immediately. I mean, they talked about this in the '80s about centralized planning, and you know, it came around today. Um, so I mean, these arguments come in cycles when things seem to be going bad. But I, I think you you know you hit the nail on the head with a lot of the, a lot of the points that you made. It, and another thing that strikes out to me, a lot of people who make these arguments, I don't think have a full understanding of why communism failed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's well established. I'm not saying scholars haven't written about it and they've written amazing stuff about it. But just to go back and think about people who couldn't go to the grocery store to get nails to fix yeah. their <laughs> just just basic things you take for granted in a, yeah, in a society. Line for a pair of shoes, you know, uh, for, for a whole day no. No, it was terrible. I mean, and there has been some great work done. Um, uh, for, for example, George Mason University um, and uh, and other and other centers. You know, it was bad. Communism was bad, and uh, it was bad for people. Um, and they didn't want it. And they they had you know a black market on the side. Which the um, uh, of course the, the leaders you know allowed because otherwise they people would starve out of uh, hunger, and mm-hmm. so it doesn't work. Um, if you need you know if you need a gun to keep people in in place in check, uh, you know to follow your idea, then something is wrong with the idea. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a good way of putting it. And another thing, just what struck me about life in the Soviet Union, and then that's one of the, the things I write on in my research, uh, and I, I, it had to be like explained to me that the Soviet citizens carried sacks everywhere because they, they didn't know when stuff would be available. So people were walking around with sacks, and they'd see something, these bags, and then they would just buy it because they didn't know what was going to be uh, out oh, on yeah. the shelves any given day. I just find that fascinating. I tell my students that, and they look at each other like that's the craziest thing they've ever heard. Uh, yeah, people had to be put on waiting lists for cars, <laughs> and if yeah. you were a party member, you're you know we had a better position on the on the waiting list. And uh, yeah, yeah. No, it was just you know it's just a bad society. Look at North Korea uh, at the moment. Uh, you know, look at Cuba. You know, yeah. they couldn't they couldn't hold it out. They uh, they had to get they had to let go their their ideas because their ideas didn't work, and liberalism does work. Well, they barely were. They, excuse me. They barely worked in Cuba when they got all sorts of good Soviet aid. Yeah, in terms yeah, of, yeah. If they needed the aid and still didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, well, thank you for those comments, and you know, I've taken so much of your time, and I, I thank you for talking with me. But for the last question, I was wondering if you might tell the audience a little bit more about what your future plans might be, whether that's teaching or scholarship. Well, first of all, Christian, thanks a lot for having me because I, uh, it was really nice uh, talking to you, and uh, I was really excited. Um, uh, and I hope you know some people will listen to this. Also, all, all the way out to the end. Yes, <laughs> but um, well, my future, my research agenda is: um, uh, I first want to get my article published on um, on Ayn Rand and international relations. And then I want to uh, write something about the uh, the differences of uh, the different liberalisms in the international relations theory. Um, so in 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 the short term, my my work will be uh, scholars. Uh, I, w- I will focus on scholarship. Uh, but 
um, I will sometimes I'm a visiting scholar as well, which I really like. So I've taken some time at, uh, at Brown University earlier this year, as I said. Uh, you know, I've been uh, a lecturer at, at Leiden University, and when I lived in the Philippines at the Ateneo uh, uh, University. So I always like to um, to teach uh, as well the interaction with students. Uh, but in but in the foreseeable future, I will not make my uh, um, will not make it my main job. But sure. um, uh, I, I just like and love to read uh, and write about liberalism. So that that's something I will always do. Fair enough. And we definitely benefit from it. And once again, uh, thank you for talking with me. This is a book that's very much worth reading. It's relatively short. So it's a book that you can pick up and read uh, very easily. And it gives you, um, as either an American citizen or a citizen from another country, a lot to think about and a lot that's relevant to understanding the world we live in. So once again, Edward, thank you for talking with me. Christian, it's been my pleasure, and thanks for the kind word. Talk to you later.